A reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Mark, the 13th chapter. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he, that is Jesus, came out to the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand as to what you will say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all. For my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it might not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, and look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. 
Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey whom he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. Lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this, your word. Complex and mysterious as it is. Mysteries that indeed boggle the mind. Profundities that have us stretching our ability to even understand, to comprehend that which you seek to communicate. It is obvious this morning as we approach this text that we desperately need your help. We need the Holy Spirit to come to lead us and to guide us. Would you grant him in great measure now to come in proportion to every soul in this room and to portion out this word in just the measure needed to give the appropriate understanding, encouragement, conviction, comfort, and challenge so that we might walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our generation. Lord, hear this prayer and answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to believe that these walls here have housed the prayers of God's people and the worship of God's people since at least 1843. Thousands upon thousands of sermons have been preached within these four walls and thousands of people over the course of those years have heard those sermons and worshiped the Lord here. That's to say nothing of the covenants of marriage that have been forged within this building and the baptisms that have been celebrated, the Lord's suppers that have been shared. It's here within these walls that generations previous to us, names of which we do not know, have met the Lord here by the power of the Spirit and the Word. The means of grace have been made available and they've been received by God's people. With that said, I think we would all agree that the vitality of our worship, the strength, its purity, its effectiveness, is not dependent on the space that we gather in. It's not dependent upon the bricks and the mortar or the beautiful stained glass windows. No, this place has housed the worship of God for uh, many years, but Technically speaking, scripturally speaking, this place is not the house of God. The scripture speaks of you as the house of God. The people, God's people. Peter tells us that we are the living stones. That's the word he uses in 1 Peter 2. 
that we are founded upon the cornerstone from which this church gets its name, even the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we are being built up together as a, catch this, a spiritual house. That's what we are becoming together as we are growing in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, being built upon Him. And as the house of God, what is it that we are called to do? Well, we are called to offer spiritual sacrifices, Peter says, that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are the house of God. But if I had showed up this morning and told you, even with that knowledge in your head and right at the, maybe the front of your mind in awareness, and I had said to you, listen, this chapel will be razed to the ground within a generation, and not a stone will be left upon another, not a remnant of the place that has been worshipped in for decades, even a century and a half will be here within this generation. I dare say a few of us in this room would be discouraged. Some of us would be shocked. And then a few questions might be voiced. <laughs> How is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? Who is going to be responsible for this when it takes place? Well, something very similar, of course, you see is taking place here in Mark chapter 13, the disciples have said, look here at this marvelous building, drawing Jesus into admiration of it. And, and yes, it was a marvelous building. It was tremendous, uh, built over the course of four decades by Herod the Great. This second temple was magnificent. It was Marble stoned and, and gold plated, surrounded with the silver sculptures. It's set upon Mount Moriah as you would come towards Jerusalem. You could see it from miles away. Historian Josephus tells us that when travelers would come towards Jerusalem and get close to the temple and the sun would shine upon it, they would have to avert their eyes from it because it gleamed like a celestial city, to borrow a line for John Bunyan. But as Jesus looks at these monstrous stones and the gold-platedness and the silver sculptures, he sees the destruction. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, it's important that we get something straight from the beginning. As painful and as questioning as it would be to see these beautiful stained glass windows utterly destroyed and this work of art, this sanctuary of the living God destroyed, the pain and the sorrow that we would experience in seeing the beauty of it disappear pales in comparison to what the disciples would have experienced in this moment. You see, the temple wasn't just a wonderful building to worship in. The temple was the geographical location for the presence of God on the earth. That's how they understood it. It was the place where God dwelt with His people. To lose the temple was to lose, as it were, the very presence of God. That's how it would have struck the heart of the disciples as they heard this prophecy from Christ. All of Israel's world, we might say, the world of the people of Israel, all of it revolved around one place, the holy city of Jerusalem, and within that place, the holy temple, the place where God had dwelt with His people. 
It's not an exaggeration to say that the end of the temple was, in the mind of the disciples, the end of the world of Israel. It was the end of the world of Israel. It stood for everything that Israel stood for. It's what distinguished them. It's the center of everything that they are. How they've been identified as a people, both together and in the world. It was the end of the Israelite world to describe this utter destruction of the temple. Maybe that's why, at least a clue, why in Mark chapter 13, Jesus brings together this imagery about the destruction of the temple that is undoubtedly historical here in Mark 13, and the glimmers and, and language of the end times in his second coming, he brings them both in the closest proximity imaginable here in Mark 13. Almost as if they are the same event. Or in some way, shape, and form, conflated to one another, touching upon one another. That in some sense, it was the end of the world in AD 68 when... The, the general Titus came in from the Roman government to destroy Jerusalem and the temple, which would ultimately be finalized in AD 70. That that in some sense was the end of the world. It was certainly the end of the Israelite world. It was certainly the end of the era of redemptive history that marks the whole of the Old Testament. But as Jesus indicates in this passage, this end is also a beginning. I don't know if you caught the metaphor where he says, you'll hear kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations. There'll be natural disasters and calamities, but take heart, this is not the end yet. This is merely, notice the metaphor, birth pangs. Interesting choice of a metaphor. He's describing the end of the temple, but he's describing it as the beginning of something else. That several things are going on in this passage, which is why when we read it, you say to yourself, I have no idea what in the world is going on. Because all of these realities are actually touching upon one another. They're conflated together in Mark chapter 13. This is actually the end of the Israelite world, and it is the beginning of what we might call the end times. Now, some of you were actually waiting for that moment. You mean we're in the end times? Yes, I mean we're in the end times. But don't get too excited yet. We've been in the end times for 2,000 years, according to the Bible. The days between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ are described throughout the Scriptures as the days of the end times, or the last days, as they are sometimes referred to as. Well, why does the Bible call this large era? <laughs> this 2,000 years now plus of, the, of time, the last days. That, that feels deceptive, maybe for some of us. When you think last days, you think, you know, 48 hours at max, you know, or something, something along those lines. But remember, God's timing is not like ours. A day is like a 1,000 years unto the Lord, and a 1,000 years is unto a day. And we know that He is being patient. We told in Peter because he wishes that none would perish and that all would come to eternal life. There's good reasonings for why he describes it in this way. But the last days is less to do with time and more to do with redemptive event. 
Do you see, we're only waiting for one more redemptive event. One last redemptive event. Do you know which event that is? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've noticed, but everything else in the Bible has really been fulfilled except leading up to the final chapters of the book of Revelation. We are the people who sit between the times and the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ waiting for the coming of the Lord. We are those who live in the last days. We are the people who are awaiting the last event, the coming back of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the challenge. At the moment that Jesus is saying these words in Mark chapter 13, everything that he's speaking of is futuristic to the disciples who he's speaking to. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, who have called this private conference with Jesus to ask him some questions about what he just declared about the temple, he is now going to forecast things that will happen 40 years in the future. And then he will also forecast things that will happen in the future of which I would suggest we have not seen. And for Jesus, it's almost as if they are the same thing. It's almost as if they're connected Because they are. The end of the Israelite world was the beginning of the end times for Jesus. And the beginning of the end times was the focus upon the last redemptive event in redemptive history. And that is his second coming. So notice the question the disciples actually say in the text. Because this question frames the whole of what is said in Mark 13. Verse 4. Tell us when will these things be? The declaration of the temple and its destruction in Jerusalem. When will these things be? And then notice the second question. And what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished. Now, what was certainly from the disciples' standpoint, almost assuredly from the disciples' standpoint, a very matter-of-fact and direct question. When will this destruction of the temple happen? And then when will all that's related to the temple's destruction be accomplished? (laughs) And that has a much bigger trajectory. Because what all of what the temple's destruction means, means that the gospel is now going forth to the Gentiles, to all of the nations. It's mentioned multiple times here in Mark 13 that first, all the gospel must be proclaimed to the nations. That is still underway, by the way. And yet, in one sense, has been accomplished in the first century. What do I mean? The whole of the book of Acts, for instance, actually speaks to us of the fact that the gospel went to all of the nations or to all of the world. You might remember Dr. Luke, who is the writer of the Acts of the Apostles, his second volume after his gospels. He's showing us the unfolding of the, of the, the church and the, the nascent days, the early days of the spread of the church throughout the world. And he opens up his whole second volume of Acts with the Great Commission. Uh, That we are to go, therefore, into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he tells us how it should spread. It should start in Jerusalem, and then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then where? 
the uttermost parts of the world. And we think to ourselves, see, it's just now getting to certain parts of the world. Well, that's actually not how Luke would have thought of it in the original inscribing. If you actually read the whole of the book of Acts, it follows the pattern of starting in Jerusalem. Then the gospel moves to Judea. And then we see the gospel spread to Samaria in the gospel of, 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 of Acts, or in the book of Acts. And then at the end of the book of Acts, where does it end? In Rome. What is Rome? The uttermost parts of the world. It's, it's the nations. The gospel has gone out to the nations. In one way of speaking, that was utterly fulfilled in Luke's mind in the, gospel of, or in the writing of Acts has gone out into all of the world. In another way of speaking, it is still going out to all of the world. You see how this can get confusing? These things are both true then, they're true now, and they will be true. And the fulfillments have veils of unfoldings as to what is meant and intended by the words. Jesus is speaking in one sense to every generation that exists within the last days. Yes, even this one that sits in pews in Middle Tennessee 2,000 years removed from this text. Now, we could take time, and don't get too worried about this, we could take time to look at every section in Mark chapter 13. We could consider each of the metaphors in detail. I had considered turning this into a four or five week sermon series in Mark chapter 13, but I want you to know I didn't do that, and I recognize you didn't bring your lunch, and you didn't bring your dinner, and you don't have a sleeping bag, because that's how long it would take for us to work through all of the details of Mark chapter 13. So, if you'll notice in the bulletin, on Wednesday night, starting in October, we're going to spend some concentrated time on the doctrine of the end times. And we're going to give a more detailed uh, plumb dive into Mark chapter 13, Matthew 24, other texts related to the end times at that point. I think that will actually be more helpful to us. Uh, than trying to cram all of what's in Mark chapter 13 this morning or stretch it out um, over multiple weeks. And so what I would decided to do in the rest of our time together today is to recognize what is, I think, an often forgot focus in Mark 13. Right now, some of us are so focused on the metaphors, what they mean. And we're reading the Bible right next to the evening news. And we're thinking to ourselves, this is the end times. And I just want to give you a window in the fact that pretty much every time in human history has thought that. Because every time in human history looks about this disastrous. And there's something to that. That's part of what Jesus is describing for you. He, part of what he wants you to see is this is what the last days are like. And we're in them, and we've been in them for a long period of time. So stay awake, he says. <laughs> stay awake. What he shows us in this passage is not just the interest of predictions and timings and particular fulfillments of the metaphors and imagery. What he actually focuses in on is how the disciples should live in the midst of that future. I want to take just a few minutes and look at that. And then go deeper with you on Wednesday nights in October. How should we then live as those who are people of the last days? And I want to give you five applications this morning. Application number one. In the face of fear, stand fast in faith. In the face of fear, stand fast 
in faith. Notice that Jesus says multiple times in this text, there'll be rumors of wars and uprisings. The earth itself will be full of conflict. Natural disasters will be present. All the people around you are going to go into panic. False prophets are going to arise. Gurus are going to arise. Some will come in my name, try to persuade you of something different that I have taught you. And when they come, verse 5 he says, be sure they don't lead you astray. Be sure that you don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. In the midst of false claims, in the midst of rumors and and wars, in the midst of uprisings and calamities, Jesus says, don't waver. Stand fast in the faith. Keep your focus. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I love what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. This is young Timothy about to pastor the church at Ephesus. He says, I entrust you with this command in keeping with the previous prophecies about you so that that by them you may fight the good fight. Holding on to the faith. The word is literally steadfast. Holding on to the faith with a good conscience, with a clear mind and a clear conscience. Then notice this, which some have rejected and thereby made shipwreck of their faith. That's the fear. Isn't that the fear of the day and time in which we live? Uh, That we would be so consumed by the things and by the experts and by the uprisings and by the rumors, which notice it says rumors. It doesn't say reports or truth. It's, it's, like false, it's like fake news. By the rumors, by the scuttlebutt that you hear that you don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> that's coming at you from a lot of directions. Don't have your mind there. In the midst of that, if you're centered there, you're going to be thrown all over the place. There, stand fast in the faith. Return to the things that I've taught you. Go back to the things that you know are true. The Lord keeps those in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on him, the prophet Isaiah tells us. In the face of fear, stand fast, he says, in the faith. This should be characteristic of what the church community should be striving and encouraging each other to keep the main thing the main thing, especially during times that are fraught with lots of chaos and crisis. The second thing he says is this in the face of opposition, Bear witness. In the face of opposition, bear witness. In verses 9 through 11, we're told that the disciples, and this actually comes true in the book of Acts, we'll note this, are going to be handed over to the councils. They're going to be handed over to governors. They're going to be handed over to kings. And they're going to be beaten at times. They're going to be attacked. They'll be brought to trial and falsely accused. They will be hated, Jesus says, for my name's sake. Bank on this. And when it happens, what do you do? Bear witness. Bear witness for me. He says, you've been brought before them for my sake. It's not a dilemma, you see, for God, that you've been put in a difficult predicament with governing officials. It's an opportunity to bear witness to the gospel. 
And I just glanced through the book of Acts because a lot of that's the context actually leading up to A.D. 70. And what we see is exactly what it is that Jesus is sharing here in Mark 13. Uh, let me just give you some examples. Peter was threatened and arrested in Acts chapter 4. The apostles were beaten and arrested in Acts chapter 5. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 7. James is killed and Peter is arrested in Acts 12. Um, Peter is stoned and left for dead in Acts 14. Paul is imprisoned in Acts 16. A mob riot breaks out in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Jews incite opposition in Corinth in Acts 18. Paul is attacked by Jews in Jerusalem and arrested in Rome in Acts 21 through 23. And that's just a really quick scant look at the growth of the church. In the midst of opposition, what was happening? Bearing witness. And what was happening in that bearing witness? The church was growing. The church was growing. In fact, as Tertullian would say, not long after the writing of the book of Acts, that the blood of the martyrs becomes the seed of the gospel. The opposition from the world is not a stymied to the sharing of the gospel. The Bible speaks of it as the opportunity in the context in which the gospel often goes forward most powerfully. In opposition, he says, bear witness. In the face of opposition, share the gospel. The Lord will build His church. Thirdly, I want you to see that in the face of death... We must trust the Word of God. We must trust the Word of God. In verses 14 to 22 in the text, Jesus describes terrifying circumstances leading up to the sack of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And He gives very specific instructions. Notice this. He gives instructions to those who are on the housetops and those who are in the fields. Now, again, if this is all futuristic... It's a little hard to understand why he's talking about housetops. I mean, if he's talking about you, it might be the day that you're cleaning your gutters out that he comes. But maybe you'll remember that in the first century, the housetops was actually the front porch. It's where you spent your time. It's actually where you ate meals. It's where you fellowshiped. If you were there in the most public living room gathering of the first century house, he's saying, act quickly when these terrifying things come upon you. And he says... Beware of those who are pregnant, those who are nursing, those who are going to be vulnerable in those days and times. Flee to the hills of Judea, not to the hills of Middle Tennessee. Flee to the hills of Judea. It's very specific about the context. But what does he tell his disciples to trust in those moments? Be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. <laughs> I have told you all things. Notice that when Jesus tells them all of these things of which they go, Oh no, this sounds terrible. I'm freaking out. Someone give me medicine to deal with my anxiety. Like that's what's happening inside the disciples. He says, Hold up. I've told you all things beforehand. You have everything that you need to be able to face the circumstances that are coming your way. Trust the word of God. Trust what I've told you. We may say talk is cheap, but the truth is it depends on who's talking. <laughs> and in this case, Jesus is talking, and his word is not cheap. It is the most valuable thing in the world. It is sweeter than honey, even sweeter than the honeycomb. It deserves our unswerving allegiance. 
I quoted earlier in the service from the psalmist, the psalmist who describes the earth as giving way, the mountains being thrown into the heart of the sea, the waters roar and foam. Sounds kind of like Mark 13. (laughs) And this is what he says, as the waters swell at the trouble that's around you, he says, know this, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Notice what he says. He utters his voice. He speaks to you in the midst of it. Now, this, you know this personally. I can't go far down this because of time. You know this personally, that when you're in the midst of the storm, when your life personally has, as it were, a mountain falling into the sea, the utter upheaval and collision of all things, this is a moment where you are either undone or a moment where you're made. You're undone if you're looking at all the circumstances and completely filled with the panic that the uncertainty, that the thing that you trust in, like the earth that you stand on, is giving way. The thing that you're most assured of is not going to let you down, starts letting you down. He says to us, listen to my voice. Your foundation was never the earth. But it was the rock of myself and my word. That's what he's saying to you. In the midst of the face of death, in the midst of crisis, trust the word of God. You know we say this every week for a reason. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Do you believe that? Fourthly, in the face of mystery... Trust the God of the Word. In the face of mystery, trust the God of the Word. Now, why did I put this point in? Well, because Mark 13 is hard. And we don't understand everything about it. If you do, come see me afterwards. In fact, I can almost assure you that based upon the debate of 2,000 years of interpretive history around Mark 13, that there are some things that we can say for certain about this text and feel really strong about it. There are things about this text that we're still very much wet cement on, so to speak, that we could be wrong. There are things I hold firmly. There are things I hold with an open hand as I look at Mark chapter 13. Now, here's what's beautiful about the Scripture. Gratefully, as I love this, as I think it was Alistair Begg who said this, the plain things in the Scripture are the main things of the Scripture, right? And the main things of the Scripture are the plain things in the Scripture. In fact, our own Westminster Confession of Faith makes that clear in its first chapter in the Confession. It says, not all, everything in the Scripture is alike unto plain, Right, okay, very nice. Um, all right. And he was talking about Mark 13 when it, when it said that. But I want you to know that this is actually true, that the Bible itself says that. You don't even have to believe a confession, as important as that is, regarding the truth, uh, reflecting the truth of the Bible. I want you to hear what Peter said. Peter, at the very end of 2 Peter chapter 3, as he's communicating uh, to those in whom he's writing, he says this. There are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. That's the Bible. 2 Peter 3.16. If you don't believe me, go there. The Bible says there are some things in the Bible that are hard to understand. Take heart. Peter is saying, do you remember Peter? He was an apostle. 
There are some things in Paul's writings, according to Peter, that are hard to understand. He could have said, there are some things that Jesus has said that we find a little bewildering. There are some things that are challenging. When we come to the places of mystery in the Bible and places where we are confused, here's what we need to be encouraged in. We need to trust the God of the Word. You notice that's different. You know, a lot, of the, a lot of times our trust in God has to do with how well we understand everything about Him. And some of our faith battles and doubts have to do with the fact that there's mystery and things we're confused by. What the Scripture is actually telling us is that the secret things belong to the Lord. His ways are higher than your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. As you study God who is infinite and you are finite, you will constantly reach the end of your capacity. You are in over your head at the very beginning of the study of God. And as he communicates clearly to you the most central things, and as you learn about the depth of his love, and then you stumble upon the things that you can't make heads or tails of, go ahead and trust the God who has spoken to you clearly that you can trust him with the things you don't understand. You can trust him with the things you don't understand. Do you know what? You're going to go to your grave with things, biblically speaking, that you, don't, you won't know. That goes for me too. For mysteries. I'm going to trust the God of the Word when I don't fully understand everything in the Word of God. Finally, fifthly, in the face of Christ's return, and that's what we're looking at. In the face of Christ's return, be on guard and stay awake. Be on guard and stay awake. Those are the two imperatives that are most given throughout Mark chapter 13. Be on guard, which is almost like stand fast in the faith. But similarly, be savvy, be wise, recognize the evil one is about, recognize that not everybody is on your team, that people are actually out to get you for Christ's sake. That's true in the world. He said you can bank on it. Multiple texts of Scripture we can go to to see that. Be on guard. But then he says, stay awake. In the face of Christ's return, stay awake. Notice what he doesn't say. In the face of Christ's return, predict when you think he'll come. Notice he didn't say that. In fact, verse 32 tells us very specifically in the text that nobody knows when he's going to return. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. We should be very, very careful to not overstep this guardrail placed for us in the Scriptures. And listen, we have run culturally over this verse and over this parameter roughshod for for decades. That's not the point, you see. You see, again, I think this is part of what it is It's partly to say about us. If we could predict the exact time of Jesus' return, then we could control things up to that moment. And then we would know, and we we don't want to be surprised. We don't want to be taken unawares. Then we would know that he's definitely coming. So there's an impulse inside of us for that. Because we want to be sure that we're ready. And he doesn't tell us when exactly he's coming. You know what he tells us? Is that every day we've got to stay awake. We've got to stay awake. Now, there's many ways to understand what he means by stay awake. But when you look at Luke 21, you look at Matthew 24, you look at the parallel passages, 
most often the idea of staying awake has to do very interestingly with prayer. With prayer. If you look in both of those texts, prayer actually makes a bigger uh, presentation in this particular prophecy than Mark actually gives it. And I think there's some reasons for that that we won't go into. But Luke 21 and Matthew 24 both tell us that staying awake is a matter of prayer. Why prayer specifically? Well, you think of it. Prayer is where you stay steadfast in the Lord. Prayer is where you commune with the living God. It's where the things of the Scripture complain to your heart. It's where your anchor goes deep and you're kept from being tossed to and fro. Prayer is the place where genuine communion with the Lord is actually shared and a firmness and a strength and a peace and a comfort comes because you're in the presence of Almighty God. Stay awake and praying. Notice the disciples' biggest challenge going up to the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus' crucifixion is going to be staying awake when doing what? Praying. Don't we know even the parable of the virgins where they don't trim their lamps and have enough oil, but they go to sleep when the bridegroom comes? A picture of prayer and waiting on the Lord. When we look at Luke 21, verse 36, there's actually two things that we're told to pray for. We're told to pray for the strength to escape and endure trials. Pray for the strength to both escape, know how to move around as it were. Notice he says flee to the hills when this happens. Escape is, is one strategy. And the other is at times you're going to get caught and brought before governors. Okay? And when that happens, endure. Both strategies are are real. Pray for the strength, he says, to escape and endure. And then he says, secondly, pray for the strength to stand before the Son of Man. Now, that's just a shorthand title for Jesus. Pray for the strength to stand in the day of Christ's return. Stay awake in your prayers, preparing yourself for the day of Christ's return when all will be known. And all of who we are will be exposed before the presence of our great Savior and Lord. What's remarkable is that the Lord Jesus Christ has actually done this on our behalf. And I was reading that in Luke 21 and then again in Matthew 24. I was struck by the fact that Jesus himself, well, he prayed, didn't he, before he went to the cross? Before he went to governors and kings and authorities, he, he, he committed himself to the Lord and he prayed earnestly, awake before his father, seeking his face as he went through his greatest trial. And notice he didn't escape the trial, but notice he prayed to that end. If this cup could pass from me. But the answer was no. Because of the mission of which he was given, which was to drink to the dregs the reality of the penalty of our sin, the condemnation that we rightfully deserve, he is going to receive on the cross for us. He prayed, as it were, for that spiritual strength. And then notice it says, praying for us that we'll be able to stand before the Son of Man. But you know what Jesus is doing today? He is standing before Almighty Father, interceding on our behalf. He has been accepted. He has endured his trial. He has finished the race. And the end times, I want you to know this, friends. The end times for Jesus, for the Father, for the Spirit, for for God, the end times are as good as done. And if you're in Jesus, you are safe and secure. How we get from here to there, there's a lot of thoughts about that. 
But we actually do know the end. Hear him say, I've told you all things beforehand. I've told you all things beforehand. Listen to me. As we rest in what Jesus has done for us, let us now with strength in what Jesus has done, stand strong in the day of trial and calamity. Stand strong in opposition and bear witness. In the face of death, trust the word of God. In the face of mystery, we don't know what's going on, trust the God of the word. And let's prepare in the face of Christ's coming to stay awake in prayer and to arouse each other each time we try to doze off. Brother and sister in Christ, I don't know the day of Christ's return, but here's what I can say most certainly. We're closer than we've ever been. And that will be true every moment that we live. Whether he comes back before we die or comes back long after, generations after we die, he will come back. And when he does, if you're in him, you have every reason to hope. Stay awake. Persevere. Let the dawning of Christ shine on you. As we said earlier. Awake, O sleeper. Let the dawning of Christ shine on you. And let the heartbeat of your heart be. Come quickly. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father in heaven, we would pray for indeed that. We pray with faith and with confidence, knowing that Christ will return. That, Lord Jesus, you will not leave us here. And this story um, unfinished. You have finished this story already in the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension. It is already in redemptive history complete. You have planned the end from the beginning. We know the way that this ends. We just don't know all of the twists and turns to get to the end. And we confess that sometimes stresses us out. We keep our minds and our eyes set on the things of the world much more than we set them on the things of your word and then on the God of the word. Lord, would you help us in, in a time that's marked by much calamity, in a time that is marked by much disaster, in a time where it's hard to know what rumors to believe and not believe, that we would trust you, that we would have our minds stayed on you, that we would, in the face of Christ's future coming, stay awake and encourage each other in the wakefulness, the wakefulness, of what it means to be found in Christ. So Holy Spirit, stir up the affections for Jesus now in our hearts as we continue to worship you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.